the book of Numbers. The book of Numbers. It's because of the name of this book and a couple of the lists that are here that a lot of times I either hear groaning or snickering when I say I'm going to teach it. I just heard snickering out into the, in the front area and there's been people who have groaned, but the reason that Numbers was attached to the title is because of the two senses <laughs> that were recorded here, one at the beginning and one at the end. In the Jewish writings, the book is usually referred to as In the Wilderness. That title is taken from the very first verse. I'll read the first two verses. It says, Now the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai, in the tabernacle of meeting, on the first day of the second month, in the second year, after they had come out of the land of Egypt, saying, Take a census of all the congregation of the children of Israel by their families, by their fathers' houses, according to the numbers of names, every male individually. And so what we're going to see at the beginning is, we're going to see them at Mount Sinai. And then God is going to direct them towards the promised land. They're going to take off on an 11-day journey. An 11-day journey that is going to take them some 38 years. And so we're going to have a census at the beginning, and we're going to have a census at the end. And we're going to see some interesting things that are developed from that census, or I should say revealed from that census. The wilderness, the wilderness is to be a place that you pass through, but it was never intended by God for his people to stay there, definitely not some 38 years. And so the wilderness, it turned out to be a place that started out as a 11-day journey, but turned into a 38-year agony. Agony. Why? Because the people just could not submit themselves to God. They could not submit themselves to the Lord or the Lord's ways. And again, we're going to see lessons in our lives as we go through this book to find out, to know, to see what is necessary that we would find the blessings of the Lord as we wander through our lives, as we develop our Christian walks and continue forward in our Christian walks. The author of this book is generally attributed to be Moses, written around the time of the end of the wandering in the wilderness, some 1407 B.C. Again, we see Moses' name affixed to the first verse, also in Numbers 33, verse 2. Now Moses wrote down the starting points of their journeys at the command of the Lord, and these are their journeys according to their starting points. I haven't heard or seen any arguments against the authorship of Moses. Now, in way of reminder, the trip from Egypt, as God's people were delivered from Pharaoh, they went from there, right away it's the Red Sea. It's a time of trial. This is the first one that they're going to enter into, the very first one. Now, you've got to realize where they just left from. They just left from Egypt. Egypt is a picture of the world. If you were a born-again believer, you were all delivered from Egypt. You were all delivered from the world. And so here, God, by a mighty hand, he came against uh, Egypt and all of their gods. And it was definitely, even the Egyptian magicians realized, truly, this is the finger of God. And so he delivers them, he releases them, and they go out right away. This is the very first trial. There's the Red Sea. And there's a mountain range that encompasses one side, and they see the cloud of dust. Here comes the Egyptian army on the other side, and there's a sea in front of them. And right away we see that their, their solution is going to be to stone Moses. And Moses, 
gives that speech, stand and see the glory of the Lord for these Egyptians you see today, you will see no more tomorrow. And the God says, quit talking and go up there. And I, this is what I want you to do. I want you to go up to the edge of the sea and I want you to lift your staff over the sea and I'm going to spread it. Now there's millions of people that he's doing this in front of. Millions of people, and I can just picture them, they're holding the rock in their hand and up and down. And so just think of the faith that you would have in this. Would you run up there and stick it over? Or would you be thinking the whole way, man, if this sea doesn't part, I'm a dead man. And so he goes up there and I'm thinking, okay, here I am. And this is a sea. Starts to raise his hand. Nothing's happened. Gets it to the top. There's got to be that split second that nothing happens. And again, he's waiting for the first stone. Then all of a sudden, it splits. And, you know, you can, ama- you can imagine the amazing thing that that is. And we've seen the movies and the splitting of the sea. But that pales in comparison to the release from the world. And again, you've got to look at that and your salvation. God works salvation in your life. And again, I, I always or I try to is never forget that when you come to church, when you see people getting right with the Lord, when you see people walking right with the Lord, never forget that that's a miracle. Never forget He's worked that miracle in your life. And he's working that miracle even today. Everything else pales in comparison. And you need to grasp on to that. And you need to never forget that. So that was their very first test of faith. As they went through the sea, you know that the sea closed back upon the Egyptians and many of them died there. It was from there that they went to Mount Sinai. It took about a month and a half. While they were there, they were given the law. The priesthood was established and they were instructed and, con- and um, sorry, and constructed the tabernacle. They were instructed concerning the construction of the tabernacle, and they built the tabernacle, that portable tent or that portable uh, temple. What we saw written in Leviticus was delivered around that time, just before they took off on their wilderness wanderings. Then that first census of the people was taken, and all of this had happened within about. 12 months, about a year and a half a month or so after leaving Egypt. And so there they go, they Mount Sinai, the law is given, instruction for the tabernacle, because again, what did God want to do? It was God's desire to dwell amongst His people. And so there's the tabernacle, there's the law. Everything's perfect except for the keeping of the law. We got 613 commandments again. I bring that up a lot. Why? Because you could never forget that. You can never forget, if I want God to dwell in, in my midst, if we want God to be here, we have to keep or 613 commandments. And so, because that was impossible, they knew it, obviously God knew it, we saw Leviticus, the sending of the sacrifice. The sending of the sacrifice, so when there is the violation of the law, you can appease the anger of God, sin could be covered, and God would continue to dwell amongst you. Very important if you're going out into the wilderness, especially if you're going there for 38 years, although they didn't know that at the time. So, the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. If you want a good way of remembering what's going on, I got a little list. First is Genesis. Genesis is the formation of the nation. It's where we see Jews come upon the scene from Father Abraham. Genesis, the formation of the nation. The next book is Exodus, the salvation of the nation. That nation that was uh, the formation of the nation as they went into Egypt, now they are being brought out of Egypt. So we have the formation of the nation, Genesis, Exodus, the salvation of the nation. 
Then we have Leviticus, what we just finished, the sanctification of the nation. So they would know again what is necessary to be right before a holy God. Formation of the nation, salvation of the nation, sanctification of the nation. And now we have numbers. This is going to be the education of the nation. How God fits in with our real lives, how our, how our God fits in with our everyday walk. Formation of the nation, salvation of the nation, sanctification of the nation, education of the nation. And then in Deuteronomy, we saw the preparation of the nation. It was that time just before they entered into the promised land. Formation of the nation, salvation of the nation, sanctification of the nation, education of the nation, preparation of the nation. The first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch or the Torah. So the book of Numbers will be about the education that Israel receives as they are walking through the wilderness on their way into the promised land. The reason that Numbers will encompass 38 plus years is because it's not about the length of the journey, it was only 11 days, but the time necessary for the lessons to be learned. Because not only was God going to dwell with them in that tabernacle as they were going through the wilderness, teaching them and training them as they went about their lives, but also as they entered into the promised land, there was going to be the temple and God was going to continue to dwell amongst them. See, when you spend the majority of your time, though, marching and murmuring as Israel did, you delay the blessings. And they were so hard-hearted, or as they're described in Exodus and even here, stiff-necked. A stiff-necked people who would not submit themselves to the Lord. Now, we need to remember that the wilderness, the wilderness is the place of immaturity. The wilderness, it's the place of disobedience. The wilderness is the place of correction. And the wilderness is the place of growth. Because these people are God's people. And so, I've been in the wilderness. I've been in the wilderness in my immaturity when I was first saved, not knowing the Lord and the things of the Lord. There was a time necessary for growth. There was a lot of trial and error. There were still a lot of things that God needed to deal with in my life to remove out of my life and then to bring into my life. There are some people who have decided, born-again believers, to go back into the wilderness, that place of correction, the place where growth continues. Now, there is also the promised land. Now, the promised land cannot be a picture of heaven. Why? Because there's battles to be fought within the promised land. When we get to heaven, there's no more battles to be fought. So, promised land, I can't see it as a picture of heaven, but I can see it as a picture of the blessed Christian life. Again, nothing to do with my perfection, but in my obedience to the Lord. As I'm walking in obedience to the Lord, there's still going to be hardship. There's still going to be trials and tribulations, but I have the peace of God that surpasses understanding as I'm going through those times. Understanding that it's God who is seated upon the throne and understanding that it's God who is going before me. On Sunday night, we're going to look at Ahaz, King Ahaz. He was the grandson of Uzziah. And we're going to see that this man could have been blessed by the Lord if only he would have trusted in the Lord. He's got the same Bible that we got, not all written yet, but nonetheless, he could have looked back and seen the promises of God and depended upon those promises of God and received the blessings of God. And it's the same thing with you in your life. The same God that saved you is the same God that's able to keep you. And so just as God worked that great miracle of delivering you from the clutches of Egypt, it's the same God that is going to keep you as you wander through the wilderness 
And it's the same God, if you're willing, if you're willing to be obedient, that will bring you into the promised land or the blessed Christian life. Again, there's still going to be battles to be fought. That's just the reality. There's still going to be attack and there's still going to be trouble. But it's during those times when you trust in God that you find peace in the midst of that hardship. Key verse to the book of Numbers is chapter 14, verses 29 through 30. It says, The carcasses of you who have complained against me shall fall in the wilderness. We should thank God that we're not according to the Old Testament anymore. All of you who were numbered according to your entire number from 20 years old and above. Now, you would number the males and 20 years old and above because those would be the males of military age. Except for Caleb, the son of Jehuneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun, you shall by no means enter the land which I swore I would make you dwell in. Key lesson here is the knowledge that perseverance in our Christian life is essential. Those people who came out of Egypt, they saw the mighty hand of God and still they refused to have faith and trust in Him. It was the next generations who didn't necessarily see those things but they simply heard about those things and they were able to believe and trust and enter in. And so that kind of puts us in that camp. I haven't seen it to the degree that they saw it, but I have heard of these things. I am aware of what God is able to do. Now, those people did have some experiences. I had experience in my day of salvation. And so again, the God that saved me so long ago is able to continue to keep me even in the future. And so we are specifically told as words of warning when it comes to this. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 13, he who endures to the end shall be saved because enduring faith is true saving faith. It's genuine faith. Now, were some of those people saved and not saved and all of that? I don't know. I wouldn't even go there. Because I know a lot of people who claim to be Christians and are they saved or not saved? They used to be going, now they don't even go to church anymore. They used to serve, they're not serving anymore. What about those? And I don't know. I I can't tell who's saved or unsaved. You can make a pretty good guesstimation, but I haven't been called to do that. I've been called to minister to people where they are at. And so if you have Bob here, Bob's come to church every day for two years. He raised his hand and walked down the aisle and got a big Bible and has done everything that you know, a Christian is supposed to do. And all of a sudden, Bob leaves. And then I see Bob out on the street one day, and Bob's kind of laying in the gutter, and he's had too much to drink. And I'm thinking, Bob, or I'm asking, what in the world happened to you? you know, there you were. You were walking with the Lord, and, and now look at you, and the best Bob can do is just to shrug his shoulders. So, was Bob saved? Did Bob lose his salvation? Is Bob still saved and has walked away from his salvation? I don't know any of that. But the one thing that I do know is is Bob needs ministry and he needs to do the first thing. So I'm going to treat Bob like an unbeliever. I'm not going to say, you unbeliever, you're going to hell. I'm going to tell him he needs to re-come back to the Lord. He needs to rededicate himself to the Lord. And so the people out in the wilderness, I don't know. As far as who endures to the end shall be saved, that's for God to make the determination. As far as me... I need to continue to persevere in this Christian life. What do I persevere against? I persevere against the flesh. And really, it's the flesh myself. It's, 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 it's the, the, the things and the desires of that which is contrary to God, that which I continue to war against. 
I've got to persevere against that. It's against the world because the world's trying to drag me down with them and I've got to stand strong. I've got to flee youthful lusts, but I've got to stand strong against the things God has called me to stand strong. And then our adversary, the devil, that unholy trinity, the flesh, the world, and the devil. I've got to stand strong. Now, God has not called me to perfection because I can't do that, but God has called me to trust in Him and what He is able to do. So it's here that we are reminded of all those who seem to be saved but are no longer walking with the Lord. Some of us may even be in that category. Two things to consider, though, based upon the fact that there was some 600,000 603,550 people who were counted at that first census. It was about 600,000, 603,550 who took off. Now, these were just men, so there was probably close to 2 million people. They were the ones who took off. And out of that 603,000 people, two entered into the promised land. Only two. Think of that. I mean... If those odds or you know those proportions were the same proportions here, there would be one sixteenth of one person who was saved. I mean, if even that much. I mean, of six hundred thousand people, only two enter. Only two had enough faith to enter in. Only two of those people, after experiencing everything that was experienced, were able to trust God so that they were able to enter into the promised land. We know that to be Joshua and Caleb. Moses wasn't even able to enter in. So, first, we must consider that there should be none of us who are presumptuous. That's the point that Paul was making in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1-12. through 12. He's Again, he's, he, he, he's encouraging them to stay strong in their walk with the Lord. And it says, Moreover, brethren, so he's, he's speaking to believers here, I do not want you to be unaware of our fathers who were under the cloud, all passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food, the manna that came down, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them. That rock was Christ. And so he's saying they all saw these miracles of God and how God provided for them every step of the way. And then here's this big turning point, but. Usually but in the Bible is a good thing, but God. But this is going to be but man. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these, things beca- now, now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. And do not become idolaters as were some of them, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. They were worshiping false idols. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents nor complain as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition or our learning upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, because of all of that, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Consider yourself. Consider yourself. When you see Bob lying in the ditch, consider yourself. Consider yourself because that could just as easily be you. Maybe your lust isn't drinking, but whatever it might be, if you give into it, you could, spiritually speaking, you could end up the same way. And so, let us not be judges. Let us be paramedics. Let us be paramedics ministering to one another. 
because the person that you minister to could very well be the person that at some point in your life ministers to you. The person that you restore could very well be the person that restores you somewhere down the line. So don't be presumptuous concerning your Christian walk. Secondly, we must be sure that our faith is continuous to stay connected to the Lord. Hebrews 3, 16-18, For who having heard rebelled, indeed was it not all who came out of Egypt led by Moses? Now with whom was he angry forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpse fell in the wilderness, and to whom he did swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief, because they just did not have faith in God and what God was able to do. We're going to divide the book of Numbers into three main parts. First is the preparation for the expedition in chapters 1 through chapter 10, verse 10. This is the time when Israel is camped in the area of Mount Sinai. This is the time covered from Exodus 19 through to Leviticus. This section of the book of Numbers will cover the first census, the necessity of purity in the camp, the second celebration of the Passover, and the proper signals for service concerning silver trumpets. The second section will be the witness of the walk. That's in chapter 10, verse 11, through chapter 22, verse 1. This will include the journey from Sinai to the plains of Moab some 38 years. This will include the complaining about God's provision of manna. They got tired of eating manna every single day. Miriam and Aaron's rebellion and the sending of the spies. Also, the refusal to enter into the promised land. The rebellion of Korah. Moses striking the rock a second time, and the plague of serpents. The third part of this book will be the conclusion as they arrive at their destination, chapter 22, verse 2, to chapter 36. This is the arrival at the plains of Moab as they are at the threshold into the promised land some 38 years, not after leaving Egypt, but 38 years after leaving Sinai. During this time, we'll see the efforts of Balaam. We'll see his donkey, his famous donkey. The second census, the naming of Moses' successor, who we know to be Joshua, and the instructions for the settlements in Cana. In the book of Numbers, we will see various lessons in leadership as Moses is faced with a series of obstacles. Told in the Bible that God never changes, and we've seen by experience, rarely does man change as well. And so the same things that Moses experienced as a leader, we'll experience as a leader as well. As a pastor of a church, a leader over ministry, or maybe even just a leader of the household. In chapter 12, we'll see the people who were closest to him. His sister and his brother, Miriam and Aaron, they question his authority. Not only do they question his authority, but they affect others that is going to cause rebellion further on in those other people's lives as well. See, as a leader, sometimes it just boils down to you and the Lord. Just the things that you know that God has called you to do. The direction that you know that God has told you to take. And again, it can seem like there's so much opposition. Again, raising a family. You'll have parents maybe that are unsaved telling you what you need to be doing. Friends that'll, who don't have any kids but feel that they're experts in raising kids will be telling you how to do it. But my wife and I, we just focus on training them up in the ways of the Lord. And that has played out in our lives. Train them up in the way that they should go, and when they get old, they will not depart. Now, I'm not saying they didn't have their testimonies. 
I'm not saying they didn't have their backslides and they're, even they're walking away, but as of right now, as far as I know, they're serving the Lord. And it's not me, it's what God did just simply because my wife and I were obedient to what God called us to do. That is essential because the very worst thing that you can do is to claim yourself to be a Christian and not act like it at home. I don't see my kids doing everything that I told them to do, but I see a lot of the things that I exemplified in their presence. And so you can't tell them, don't do what I do, do as I say. That doesn't work because they're going to do the opposite. You've got to exemplify the Lord. And you will be doing so, I guarantee you, in the face of opposition. Secondly, in chapters 13 and 14, there's a crisis of faith as 10 out of 12 spies can't be wrong. Can they? Because God has told, Moses knew, God told them to go into the promised land. But I would tell Moses, how can you send spies then? How come you send spies and what were you looking for? You should have just went when you had the opportunity. But they sent spies and the spies go in, 10 of them who were faithless, they went in and they just saw, well, they felt like a bunch of grasshoppers in there. And they were afraid of getting stomped by the people who were, well, the giants who were of the land. They had forgotten. See, the people who live in that land, they weren't the most powerful nation in the world. They came out of the most powerful nation of the world. And if you could tell them, you already dealt with the hardest, and and you just see what God did. Can you imagine what God's going to do as you cross that Jordan River in faith and go in and possess the land? Well, there was only two people who were able to do that. Again, it was Joshua and Caleb. And so we'll have lessons in trusting in God when facing overwhelming obstacles. Thirdly, chapter 16, people drawn away by those who have a better idea, Korah. Korah was more than likely the nephew of Miriam and Aaron. And I would imagine their rebellion probably had an effect upon him because rebellion rebellion is a cancer amongst God's people. And so really what Korah developed into was a wolf in sheep's clothing that so easily divided the body of believers, drew people away to himself, but unfortunately he did so for their destruction. And again, there's always going to be somebody who has a better idea. There's going to be somebody that wants the notoriety whenever there's a group of people. And then chapter 20 is the worst of all when it comes to being a leader, not so much pointing the finger at Moses, but pointing the finger at self. It's personal failure. Through the smiting of the rock twice, Moses misses the mark, and we all are reminded of the weakness of even the best of all leaders. There was a time when God told him to smite the rock, hit the rock with the staff, and water came flowing out. Again, this is a different time. They need some more water. God says, okay, well, you don't need to smite it this time. Go and speak to the rock. But Moses, he got upset. Got upset of God's people misrepresented God to the people. If you're a leader, you've got to make sure you're rightly representing the Lord. And he hit the rock and he sinned. He sinned before the Lord. And as he misrepresented God, it disqualified him from entering into the promised land. And I can imagine that just had to break his heart. Break his heart because, well, Moses is a representative of the law. It was always referred that way. Moses and the law in the New Testament. And nobody can enter in the promised land based upon the law. Sooner or later, you're going to mess up. Sooner or later, you're going to act out in the flesh, and it's going to disqualify you. Chapter 21, there's going to be attack from the outside. 
having to alter their course around Edom, Israel is forced to take a detour through the desert, and that's when they come upon the poisonous snakes. In chapter 21 as well, a walled city is attacked for the first time, and we realize no force of man will be able to prosper against God's people. And then in chapter 25, sin enters the camp and is dealt with as Balaam's curse comes upon Israel as they are tempted and they fall for the women of Moab, a passion for holiness when everybody else is going towards compromise. What is the theology that we will see in Numbers? Well, in Romans chapter 11, verse 22, it says, Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fail severity, but towards you goodness if you continue in His goodness. Otherwise, you will be cut off. See, the presence of God is always before His people. There they go. They're out of Egypt, and they're led by the Lord. It's why, you know, you kind of think, okay, it's an 11-day journey. Why didn't they just make a beeline to the border? Well, they were following God. And there was that pillar of cloud and that pillar of fire that would lead them. Now, I have to think that that pillar of cloud, well, have you ever been in the desert? I went down to wire a uh, uh, orphanage. An orphanage. They had a little chapel that they had built down in Mexico. It was near Yuma, Arizona, San Luis. And we went in there that day. It was 130 degrees. And it was just miserable. I mean, we worked in the morning. We got done what we needed to get done. We stay hydrated and everything. But I remember just sitting there thinking, there's no relief whatsoever. And the car that I drove down there in, of course, it didn't have air conditioning. And so it was just like this wet, hot blanket and miserable upon you, just not able to get any relief. The desert, we were in that building, but it was hot inside the building. There was no insulation or anything, and you just couldn't get any relief. Well, here God offers relief. There's the cloud. And the desert at night, it can get pretty cold, but there's a pillar of fire. And so in essence, what God was saying, as long as you stay under the shadow of my wings, you'll do well. Now, you have a free will. You could wander off. It could be in the heat of the day. You could wander off, but you'll suffer the repercussions. Or during the cold of night, you could wander off, but you'll suffer repercussions. And it's believed by some, and I kind of like that idea. It's not so much a pillar that went off and they were following after the pillar. I think it was just as the cloud moved, they would stay under the cloud. As the, the, the pillar of fire would move, they would stay under the fire. And they would stay under the comfort, the place where the Lord's face would, would shine upon them. You can take that or you can leave that. Nonetheless, they were still led by the Lord. They were led by the shadow of God's wings. And so the presence of God <clears throat> is always before His people. They always knew that God was with them and was directing them. First John 5, 7, For there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one. Today we know of God's direction and existence in our lives because we are filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit dwells inside of us. Secondly, theology of numbers, God's provision for His people. God provided abundantly for His people in the wilderness, and there was no other means of support. Again, the problem is, let's just use the number of 2 million. It's estimated that there was probably more. How do you keep 2 million people hydrated in the desert? How do you provide food for 2 million people? When we had the most people living in my house, there was six of us. 
It was a full-time job to keep food in the refrigerator, especially with Sean. Sean was, you know, he's six foot four. When he was growing from four to six foot four, he ate us out of house and home. And so think, you know, seriously, think of providing for two million people. They're eating three square meals a day. That's a lot of manna, but God provided. God provided abundantly for his people in the wilderness when, again, there was no other means. They had no other options. He did so with manna from heaven and water from a rock. Either way, they knew it was from him. In John chapter 6, verse 57 through 58, it's what your kids are learning tonight. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven. Not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead, he who eats this bread will live forever. Feeding on the Lord. Consuming God. And how do we consume God? We consume God through our belief. Again, it's the essence of communion. You hold the bread, the juice. What are you doing? You're consuming it. It's because those two elements have become part of who you are because you believe them with all of your heart. Thirdly, what we see, the theology of the book of Numbers, is God's patience with His people. With every step that they took, the people of Israel were worthy of God's judgment. Think of how often you're worthy of God's judgment. But because of Christ, He's very long-suffering. Think before, before you were saved, how worthy then you were of God's judgment. But what did He give you? It's what's called common grace or venial grace. It's the grace of God that allows you to exist apart from a relationship with Him that you might be saved. Think of the times before you were saved that you could have died. Think of maybe the accidents that you avoided. I can remember one morning I was kind of late for work and I was speeding a little bit, but I was coming up to this intersection and there was a lot of cross sections going down that street. I remember thinking, I better slow down in case there's a cop down there. And I slowed down before I went in that intersection. Right when I came into the intersection, a car pulled in front of me, and I broadsided it. They ran a red light. And I'm just thinking, that saved my life. That saved my life. Even as a pastor, I'm driving home. This was after a Sunday night. I'm going down Philadelphia, going that way. And I'm driving and thinking, well, I'm going a little fast. And I just kind of slow down. And out of a side street, this car just goes flying, just bonsai across Philadelphia. I mean, probably 10 feet in front of me. I'm thinking, if I was going a little bit faster, I wouldn't be alive today. That kind of ruins my illustration because I'm talking about before we were saved. Because before you were saved, if I don't slow down that one day as I'm, before I come to that, that intersection and I do die, I'm separated from God for eternity. I'm, I'm, in, I'm, I'm condemned. I'm, I'm going to hell. Literally, because I had no relationship with the Lord. But it was God's grace that kept me. In Romans chapter 3, verses 24 through 25, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as propitiation, or the price paid to appease anger, by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness, because in His forbearance, God passed over the sins that were previously committed. You've been justified. Again, never forget the doctrine of justification. You have been seen just as if you have never sinned. When God looks at you, He looks at you as He looks at Himself, as He looks at Jesus Christ. He looks at you, now He knows that you have sinned, but God has chosen because of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ to see you just as if you've never sinned. Now if you bring a five-year-old, well, seven-year-old over to my house, 
I don't know who he is. Or maybe I, let's just say I've met him before and he had a habit of doing something bad, whatever it might be. I'll see him as somebody who does something bad. And especially if he does it again, I'm going to have to learn patience. And I can't wait to just parent. Terry, I don't ever want to see this kid over here again. Now, my grandkids are coming tomorrow night. And they've got a seven-year-old. And I could probably develop a list of things that he has done wrong. But not a one irritates me. I'll be welcoming him with open arms. I choose to see them just as if they've never sinned. Although I know that they're sinners because my daughter's their mother and she was a sinner. And my daughter's mother, my wife, she's a sinner. And her mother, and it goes all the way up their line. Maybe a little bit from mine too. God sees me the same way, just as if I have never sinned. Fourthly, the theology of numbers, God's ear for his people's prayers. Moses prays for his sister and she's healed of leprosy. He prays for the people and God was gracious just as God was giving him the option to cast them off. Fifthly, we see God's protection for his people. There was no army, either spiritual or physical, that could stand against God's people. Matter of fact, when they went into Jericho, the people of Jericho, they were all shut up because they've heard of what God has done. They've heard of the amazing things that God has done for his people in the wilderness. They realize that there's not a force that can stand against these people because their God is so great. Defeated Egypt right out of the gate and everybody else that came up against them. Romans 8.31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who? Who can be against us? Who can be? And the idea is nobody. Again, a question that is asked in the scripture 90% of the time, probably 99% of the time, the answer is to the negative. If God is for us, who can be against us? Nobody. Nobody. Why? Because it was the power of God that delivered you from Egypt. And it's the power of God that's able to keep you. And it's all you have to do is place your trust in him. Israel, it took a whole generation to learn that lesson. And they learned it, and that generation, after the first generation died, with the exception of Joshua and Caleb, entered into the promised land, and they saw there truly were giants in the land, but what did God do? God went before them, and they achieved great victory, and they were enabled to inhabit the promises of God. We are those who inhabit promises of God today. Peace that surpasses understanding with a future and hope in store for us in the future. Book of Numbers, not just a listing of people, but a history of God interacting with imperfect persons who have been called to a destination and a realization that the journey is just as important as the arrival. Father, I pray that you would teach us these lessons. It's why you have given us this Christian life. Because the journey is important. Matter of fact, Lord, it's so important to you that you use us in the lives of others. And so, Father, we just thank you, Lord, that you have set your spirit upon us. We thank you, Lord, that you've opened the gates of heaven before us. And I pray, Father, that we would be a people with a mindset through obedience, through perseverance, to enter in. Lord, I just pray for this book, that you would bless us in it, that you would guide us through every step of the way, and that, Father, you would show us the things that are necessary for our lives today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you all stand, please? A couple of